Well, it's recording, even though I'm not moving. But anyway, as long as the audio works. So, hey, this there will be bourbon. It's a happy hour style. I'm going to be fueled by the IW Harper Cabernet cast release, which I don't even know if you can see with this high speed camera I got that isn't exactly filming at the moment. But anyway, uh, new release by them. Uh, I love IW Harper stuff. As I've said before, their 15 year is amazing. So if you can find it, get it. But definitely give this stuff a try. It's really delicious. Nice and smooth uh, on the finish with that Cabernet stuff. But anyway. I got Chef Andrew Gruel in here tonight filming with me. Uh, so we're just going to get right into the fact that I think how you really became on my radar, at least, uh, was with the whole shutdown during COVID a few years back and what you did with your, your restaurants, right? Through Slapfish? Yep. So how, that, how did that, what was it like that you were just like, did you guys see this happening with the restaurants? Could you kind of predict what was going to go on or were you just kind of, reading reacting to every like everything else was i guess or everybody else was at the time yeah i mean a little bit of both right but i mean i've been conditioned to uh basically just take silly and uh not well thought out orders from the government that's part of what being a restaurateur is the government thinks that they know better than somebody who's an expert in that space and i said from the very beginning that restaurants were primed and set up to really kind of tackle this head on and be able to model good behavior. We know safety and sanitation, and we understand how to quickly, you know, kind of retrofit our operations to fit any sort of um, issue related to the spread of viruses or germs or what have you, right? We get graded yeah. like a hospital. So for us, it was kind of surprising when they were, we were vilified as the, sp the space is a spread and we were shut down. Um, and, uh, all these other big box operations were allowed to remain open. Yeah. And, that, and uh, so, you know, not to, like I said, we weren't going to go too far back into how you came to this place, but yeah, you and I are basically twins at this point, like born same year, both born in Jersey and now we're both in California. And I just, you know, I came from Florida. So seeing how, I guess every, uh, let me see, if, let me see if you agree with me on this. I remember when the whole initial shutdown and like, Hey, we got to stop the spread. Right. And, at that time, I think like maybe the first month into everything, month and a half, I kind of thought Governor Newsom was doing an all right job. Did you feel that way at first or were you always kind of like this just doesn't make any fucking sense? No, I think everyone gave not just Newsom, but even just the federal government the benefit of the doubt that we got to figure this out. We got to kind of catch up to the data and understand yeah. uh, the ways in which we can um, operate while this virus is active. And as data started to come out, yeah, you're right. I mean, Newsom was very positive um, um, in the very beginning, and it felt like he was doing the right thing. But then as the data came out and you realized that the data was painting a different picture than the policy was reacting to, then you saw that, that where there was kind of, it wasn't necessarily reconciling or aligning, especially in California. And then, of course, as is the case with politics, it instantaneously became politics and not science. And it was all about, you know, one response from a certain subset of governors versus another response from another subset of governors. And then ultimately, whatever Trump said became kind of the variable. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Like, and then you saw how it just kind of, <clears throat> well, everyone that's on this side of the aisle with this letter next to their name, we all have to read and react the exact same way. And it just stopped being, as you said, about actual data and more like, well, let's just make it political. And then that's yeah, why of I said course. You know, it coming from, well, like I said, and I watched how Florida was. Right. And, you know, you have literally opposite ends of the country or opposite sides of the country and doing things 100 percent differently with no real. No real way to justify saying that we shouldn't do it that way. 
Well, yeah. So, so two different situations um, in terms of the management and the policy. But when you look at the numbers, they were everything. It, the outcomes were exactly the same. Right. right? It's two yeah. different approaches to the same outcome. And but the one the difference with Florida is, is that there was just a lot more freedom baked into that cake. Whereas in California, it was a lot more restrictive and it was top down. The, 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 the only thing that was missing from Florida, right, or other states similar to Florida, that, that's inherent in what we saw in places like California or Michigan or New York or with these more restrictive states, the hypocrisy, because the people who were creating all the restrictive policies were breaking all of their own rules. And right. what, what's ironic is when I would then point that out on social sites, people would say, yeah, well, look at what DeSantis is doing. And it's like, that's fine. DeSantis isn't setting rules and breaking his own rules, right? You see, that's the difference here that people just seem to forget. Yeah. <laughs> so we the, the irony of that is uh, when Newsom was first caught, hey, he was caught right down the street near me uh, in uh, Yonville, which is pretty funny. Uh, with the, the, French la the French Laundry, I think he was famously found out. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So, and then you saw how it just kind of, it kept going and kept going on and on. Um, so what was that? How, how was that for you guys specifically in the restaurant industry? Because I mean, you obviously know, like it would open back up. We were open for a little bit and then it would shut down. So like here in Napa, you had all these restaurants and I'm sure you guys probably had to do the same thing or to do something to stay agile and, and re responsive, you know, shutting down streets just so they could invest and build the outdoor tents area. Cause apparently like if you're outside in a tent, that's cool. But if you're inside indoors, not cool. Yeah. Well, basically, you're right. We got creative and then there were all these different ways in which we could operate within the, the, the policy or the framework. And it was a ton of money that we would have to put into that. None of that. There was no recourse on any of that money. And then still the government had the opportunity at any time to snap their fingers and pull that away from you, which they did. Right. right. So you're right. We were closed and open. And then there was a little bit of leeway given through the summer of 2020 and then going into the fall. Uh, they immediately ripped away the opportunity for outdoor dining. I mean, banning outdoor dining, especially in Southern California, where it's 75 degrees and sunny <laughs> for a virus that we know does not spread outside. After a summer of protests that we watched people piled on top of one another outside. Yep. And there were articles after articles saying, isn't it so amazing that we can protest and there's no spread of COVID <laughs> because of this, this beautiful mission that we're all on. And then we shut down outdoor dining. I mean, it, it just, it makes absolutely no sense. The, the hypocrisy was, and it wasn't like hypocrisy over time where it like kind of, you forget about it and then it gets pigeonholed. It was literally month to month. Yeah. That's what, and that's like I said, and then you had the second shutdown that came out here, I think in what December of 2021 December, or 20, yeah, 2020, December, 20, December, 2020. Yeah. And then it didn't start to reopen again until late mid to late spring of 2021. Yeah. And, and so that's why like, uh, I mean, the people I felt worse or the, the felt the worst for is because I like, I'll, I'll be honest, like me and her, we love to go out. Like all we do is go out, you know, at least once, maybe two or three times a week uh, to eat and dine and just to see how it's affecting these restaurants and these bars and these establishments that we always go to are just, you know, same with the outdoor thing, uh, getting creative to do that and then watching that shut down too. And it's just like, well, it's kind of okay for us. We're kind of insulated for it because we, you know, we do okay. But I'm thinking about these people who can't, they're physically being told they can't work. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and, and that kind of motivated you to do the fund, was it? Yeah. So when we watched everybody's jobs just get ripped away from them and specifically, I mean, there was, there's a subset of, of, you know, 
workers that live in the shadows in the restaurant industry. We all know right. that it's no secret. Right. right. And a lot of those people got left out on the streets too. And they were afraid to go to the government and even file for unemployment benefits because there's obviously always the misnomer that then their information is going to get given back and they're going to get deported yeah. or what have you. Um, so it was just, we watched so many people that we'd known for years and, and across the industry just lose their livelihoods overnight and have absolutely no safety net because the thing that people don't talk about is that the time in which they shut these restaurants down entirely, because by closing outdoor dining, you shut the restaurant down. No right. one's going to survive on takeout and delivery. There was no unemployment benefits available because the state of California had misappropriated upwards of, they say now, 60 to $70 billion in unemployment funds. So Newsom was like, you're all shut down. You all lose your job going into the holidays. Oh, and by the way, you're not going to be able to get any unemployment benefits until next year. So- live with it, deal with it. Like there was absolutely no safety net. There was no kind of nothing there to catch the fall that they created. So that's when we started to fund and said, well, if the government's not going to help, then we're going to try and pull everybody together as many people as we can, and then offer at least an opportunity for people to bridge into next year, at least get through the holidays, pay rent, pay electricity, buy Christmas gifts for the kids, do what you need to do in order to get by until the government figures this out, or at least gets out of their own way. So how, how, how was that able to, how, were you guys able to have any issues like distributing that? Cause I feel like the same thing kind of almost, you know, it, I hate to say this, but it's just honest, you know, like you, then you run into the, the idea of, oh, well maybe someone's going to just fraudulently try it cause they want to get your money or they want to get yeah. money. Right. So like, how was the distribution part of it? Oh man. Good question. We got, we got, I learned a lot about online scammers pretty quickly. Yeah. So eventually it was just my wife and myself and then my kids driving around with me distributing the money. So what we would do is, is that for every single applicant, we would call their previous jobs to find out a lot of people actually had quit their jobs. Right. So they, right. they weren't working by their own, their own will. So that, so we would call sometimes and people would be like, what they quit like seven months ago. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know? And then these sob stories all turned out to be fake. So there was, yeah, I would say 50% of the applications went into the scammer pool and then for those that were real, we would hear their story out. We would, um, you know, like I said, double check all their references and then understand what their financial needs were. So that took a lot of time going through and it was like a bank, right? We were like the underwriting department. Uh, but what ended up working out kind of well was, is that when we would call previous employers, the employers would be like, oh my God, you're helping. We're struggling. And we have these seven employees that we can't help. We had to let them go. Can you help them? So we started oh, kind of yeah. taking this reverse approach yeah. where we started working with employers. We weren't helping the business. We weren't giving money to the business because we didn't have the funds to do that. That was more of the right. barstool approach. But yeah. we were using those businesses to help their the employees within their, quote, family, right? right. Um, and, and that's where it ended up kind of helping us out. And it worked a lot more efficiently. But I remember we couldn't even access the funds for a while. GoFundMe froze my account because people started um, spamming the account saying that it was like, well, you know how GoFundMe works. Yeah. And uh, we eventually got the funds released, but then we had limits in the way in which we could electronically transfer the funds. So we just ended insane. up driving around, handing checks to landlords, paying people's electricity, giving cash to people throughout Southern California, like days before Christmas. It was crazy. That's insane. I see. And that's, this is the stuff that, you know, yeah, there's, you know, obviously I, I learned of it, you know, because we interact on Twitter and I follow and see that, but that's, there's not enough spotlight on stuff like this. You know, it's just like, oh, let's, uh, let's highlight the, the fact that, 
you know, we still have to wear masks inside in this place, but not in this place rather than, you know what, here's what, here's something good that came out of this fucking shit show. And yeah, I mean, I, that's more than, a, I had no idea you guys went to that extreme, especially given the fact that, you know, I, I feel like you got some regular day-to-day activities you got to take care of, right? With work. Yeah. I mean, we had the restaurants, we had our own businesses to take care of in the restaurant. We ended up raising almost a half a million dollars and giving awesome, out man. denominations of like $500. So you got to figure, right? I mean, yeah, you know, that's a thousand that's a, that's a thousand, um, checks or, or payments that we were making. And, uh, yeah, definitely it was a, it was more than a full-time job. We had just had a baby. And, uh, I remember like my wife was up with the baby. The baby was like four weeks old, but like three o'clock in the morning, she was on the phone with one of the employers. The employer was crying because they couldn't even keep the business afloat, but she wanted to take care of her employees. So she's telling them their story. She's crying. My wife's emotional. She's crying. It was like, this was like all night. Like we did this through three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. And we'd get up at like 7 a.m., refresh the funds, yeah, yeah. find out how much we could wire that day. And then any any overages, then it was like, okay, I'll drive here for four o'clock. I'll drive here at five o'clock. Do this, do this. All the while still doing your own restaurants. That's 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 amazing, man. So were you able to, uh, you know, actually that's it. Hold on. Let me go back. So you guys had a baby during all this. Yeah. And yeah, you already had how many? Sober. Yeah, you already had a few kids already. So that how was that whole experience getting in and out of the hospital with this stuff going on? That it was pretty nuts. We got lucky though. We got really lucky because I've heard some crazy stories during COVID about mothers who like had a false positive for COVID because they test you when you go in the hospital and then they yeah. would like separate the baby from them. That's which fucking is just insane. That's fucking, fucking horrific. Insane. That's inhuman. Like, what the fuck? It, it totally is. Um, so we were fortunate in that like we were in a hospital that was still really strict, but like. I don't know whether it was like the people we were working with or my wife is just really good at talking to people. Like they didn't even make us wear the masks. They never tested her for COVID. Like it was, we actually had a real good experience. We were lucky, but still all that aside, just having a baby, like in the midst of all this was in and of itself was nuts. Yeah. It's, it's, I I just feel bad for the kids to be honest, because you know, you got kids and you probably know that I'm sure you got some school age children at this point, but you got kids who've never known what it's like to go to school without a fucking mask on their face. Well, that's why we, so we pulled our kids from school. We don't do that shit. We, we, we we're, yeah, we're doing like a community homeschool thing now. That's um, awesome. We, we never, we never played into that. We'll, we'll never subject our kids to that abuse. I mean, it's unbelievable. So I've got kids, I've got uh, 11, seven, three and one and a half now. And, uh, um, Nope, nope, we're not doing that. And you're starting, you know, and I'm, and I'm being honest, man. It's like, it, it's it's something I feel, at least for me growing up, like, you know, there was kind of like a negative stigma to homeschool. You know what yeah. I mean? I think, you yeah. know, and now I feel like it's starting to come kind of, it's getting more and more popular. At least it seems like it is. I don't know if it is, but it certainly seems like it is. You, you well, there was, a certain, there was a certain amount of level-headedness when we went to school. Because you, wait, did you grow up in Jersey? No, I moved out of there when I was five. So I spent, I really pretty much grew up in the Florida school system. So okay. yeah, I still see what you're saying. But, but like we would go out like, yeah, it was still, we were still of that era where like, you're just a kid, like you're going to get sick. You're going to, you're going to yeah. get into a fight. You're going to crack your head right. open. You're going to do all this stuff. Like we were not, we didn't, we weren't wrapped in bubble wrap. Um, right. But now it's, it's totally different because what's happened is, is that, in my opinion, the government is using the school system and the kids for that matter to push certain political agendas. And they do that because kids are malleable, man. It's pretty yeah. sick, actually. 
um, the way in which they're using kids now. So you're starting to see people who actually are reasonably minded are removing their kids from the school system. And like, we don't homeschool the kids at home. We put them in a group program where they're they're with other like-minded families and kids, you know? So it's, uh, it's actually much better, but the schools in California, I can tell you right now, they're going to start, they're going to start cracking down on that. It's kind of, it's kind of right now, um, working through this charter school system, but I think they're going to crack down on that. Pretty yeah, that, hard. Was my, that was my next question because at, at some point, um, you know, you lose, you lose students, you lose money, right? You bingo. Exactly. And look, <laughs> the state wants to own your kids. Yeah. Like the state truly believes and, and, and a lot of people truly believe that the government and the state know better for your kids than you as a parent do. Yeah. That's, I think we kind of go back to what you were saying, like how we, how we grew up, but think about it. Like, you know, you and I probably graduated high school the same year. If this would have happened when we were in school, there wouldn't have been a shutdown because you just couldn't, (laughs) No, you couldn't do it. Technology, the the tech, like this right here, what you and I are doing this zoom and all and this, you know, when my daughter, she had started high school and was doing her zoom classes and stuff. I'm like, there's no way we could have even done that because we didn't have the technology no. to do it. So it would have just been like, Hey, you're going to school. We're going to, we'll just get through this somehow. At least that's what I think. Cause I don't think there's any way they would have done what they did if this was 20 years ago. Well, that's actually a really good point you make. Let's extrapolate that into a bigger, into a bigger platform. Do you think that if this, if this whole pandemic had hit in like the, you know, the mid nineties or the late eighties when we were in elementary school, do you think that any of this sensationalism and fear and, and like, this hyper way of living do you think any of this would have happened i don't think they could have because there was no way to get the attention of that many people like we do now exactly social media there's no way to scare that many people right 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 so and uh yeah i think that two weeks to slow the spread would have actually happened hey two weeks is up sorry we're just gonna have to get back to work and school we'll figure it out yeah yeah you don't take time off right like (laughs) well let me ask you this too right do you remember because I love how this has just been totally pigeonholed. Do you remember the videos of the people dying on the streets of China? Yeah. <laughs> so like whatever happened, because those I were all know. false. Well, I mean, and this is my thing from, you hate to think like this, but this is how I think. So yeah, it is what it is. Because I have the same questions as I do with this shit going on in Ukraine. Where, where are all the bodies at? Where are all these yeah. people, like, you know, where are all the firefights in, in the Ukraine? Like, okay, we got a video for every fucking thing else, but you're trying to tell me there's no actual combat footage of, like, actual? It's just like when you, you just mentioned the stuff with China, but, you know, if we had that many people just dying every day, I don't remember seeing any funerals really on TV other than the ones we weren't allowed to go to, apparently, you know, <laughs> unless totally you're a nice. congressman and you could show up and have 800 people there. Um yeah, I don't know, man. Like, because you hate to think like that, don't you? Does, it, do you, you really don't want to believe like this is what we live in. You don't. You don't want to think about the evil, the inherent evil in some people, but it is propaganda wars, right? So, oh, totally. as as going back to what I originally that kind of question I posed twenty years ago, thirty years ago, forty years, whatever, when we were growing up, you wouldn't have the opportunity to spread propaganda. You wouldn't have the opportunity to incite fear overnight instantaneously right like people still had to connect dots and think about it critically right that ability to think critically has been killed by the speed at which we communicate via social media yeah i mean we've been uh, it's probably something i bring up all the time on here is that like you think about your phone like you're you know 
you have everything in the world's history on your phone at any given time. Yeah. And it's just making us dumber. It's not making us smarter. Well, yeah, for those of us, some of us use it, right? <laughs> but most, most people don't. That's why sometimes when I see people tweeting things, I'm like, you can Google that. Like, that, that, <laughs> like you can look that up. That's not correct. It's, um, it, it's totally crazy, but um, it doesn't necessarily, just because the information's there doesn't mean people actually know how to now be, an, you know, analytical with it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think that goes into what we're, we were just talking about with how do you control so many people? And it's the way through social media or the news or whatever. They want everyone, they want someone else to do the thinking for them. Yeah. So many things, right. Because, you know, let, bring it all the way back to what we started with. Like people, people have other things they got to worry about throughout the day. Like, am I going to have a job? So man, I don't yeah. really want to take the effort to put some critical thinking into my being True. told the truth. Right. Which, you know, it sucks to say, but some in, in a way I can kind of understand that, but you know, that's, that's lazy. And I don't like laziness in any form, whether it's intellectually or physically, like if you're a lazy person, you're going to get taken advantage of. Yeah. Or you're going to miss yeah. opportunities one or the other or both. Yeah. And that's a good point you make is, is that at the end of the day, like, you know, outside of Twitter or, or Instagram or Facebook in the real world, people are worried about the basics, right? Food on the table, yeah. taking care right. of their kids, getting up, getting, um, you know, getting a raise or, or, or paying rent, these very, very basic things. They don't have time to try and ascertain the difference between disinformation and misinformation and fact check crap. Right. So they'll, right. they'll, they will blindly accept some things that are fed to them, not out of, not out of like stupidity, but just out of the inability to have the time, as you mentioned, right. Not because of laziness, some cases it's lazy, but other times it's just because you got to do, you got to, you've got to survive. Yeah. And that's why I just kind of, the question I still always come back to, and I never really get, I can never really formulate my own good answer because I, you just don't want to believe it. Right. Is like, well, if, if that stuff's really going on is if there's so much disinformation and it, there's intent behind it, who and why, and like, why and who, like, that's the problem. It's like, cause you know, I just don't give these fucking half of these fucking politicians that much credit. I don't think they're very smart people. Well, I agree. Right. So, so that's a really great, that's a, that's an amazing point you make. And I've said it before, right. On the one hand, we can't say these people are idiots and they're stupid, but then on the other hand, promote that they've all been able to pull this grand conspiracy theory together. (laughs) Right. But, but to argue against myself, what I will say is this, is that when there is a chosen narrative, okay. Groupthink takes effect and they can regurgitate that narrative. So, Sometimes it's not necessarily like this grand manipulative plan in so much as it is just hardening or synthesizing a chosen narrative by repeating it over and over and over again in different environments, in different forms, through different media and different mediums, right? But it's the same narrative over and over again. So if it's a narrative that supports whatever the mission of whoever creates the narrative is, and I'm being very careful about picking a topic, but it applies to multiple topics, then the mere repetition of the narrative thousands and millions of times from top to bottom, from, 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 you know, high level actors to just the average everyday person um, somehow galvanizes that narrative as crazy as that is like the mere repetition of a fake narrative galvanizes the actual narrative and somehow turns it into truth truth. or what, what they call truth. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, like, I don't know, man, because 
I always say this as well. Like Twitter's not real. I mean, it, it, it builds real connections. Like obviously I, I'm sitting here and talking to you because of it. Yeah. Uh, on some of the, the, the mutual connections that we've built. Uh, but then like, you know, I always go outside and you just look around and you just see and talk and deal and interact with people. And it's not like Twitter. Like, you know, there's still some very good and normal things going on. <laughs> Whereas if you, you think everything on Twitter is just the world's burning at all times, which maybe it is. And I just don't see it, but I still think there's a lot of good, decent people and the stuff that you can go out and do and interact with strangers sometimes is, is fucking yeah. real and it's rewarding. And it's not just people yelling and screaming at each other about how they're right and you're wrong all the time. Like, I don't really get a lot of that in person, to be honest. It's really, it's really just on the Internet. A lot of a lot of it is a lot of it is. You're right. Uh, the scary thing is, though, is, is that those people still interact in the real world. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's what you got to wonder. You know, some of them are fake, of course, and that's why you're right. Twitter isn't totally real. I think that the I think that the, uh, you know, the craziest part is that we're being spoon fed through sites like Twitter. We're being spoon fed, spoon fed information that is incredibly divisive. Right. Yeah. And it's turning the average person against the other average person. Right. It's turning people against each other. And it's forcing them to kind of tribalize their their thoughts. This middle of the road thing. If you're middle of the road now, you're 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 even you're worse. Yeah, right. You're probably a sympathizer with something. Exactly. Bingo. (laughs) Bingo. Right. So you see, it's this it's this constant need to turn people against each other because that's what makes people money. That's and and I said this in the beginning in the pandemic. The one thing that nobody really kind of thinks about is is that in the absence of sports, right. Sports yeah. is huge in America. Yeah. When you pulled sports away from everybody, all the people who were obsessed with whether it was fantasy football or whatever their sport was, instead they took that energy and they threw it behind a politician. Yeah. Politics became sport. Yeah. I had friends of mine who, in the absence of rooting for the Yankees or the Rams or whatever, were like, I'm a Pelosi guy or I'm this. Like It became sport, yeah. almost blood sport. <laughs> um, and that was huge in this like, beginning part of the of the pandemic and then i just think it's it's snowballed and it never went away I, well and yeah, and then, become political yeah that's the worst part man it's like but i mean i think I, I can't remember where i've heard this but someone has said recently that uh the only thing good on tv anymore is live tv right so whether it's politics or sports that's it because you don't know what's going to happen next everything else yeah. is scripted right yeah. so yeah, everyone wants to tune in and watch what, you know, some of these fucking debates are going to be or, or whatever it is going to be on there. And then, of course, you know, 200 million people watch the Super Bowl for a reason. Man. So, I mean, yeah, we're not watching. The, we're not we're not galvanized behind anything else. Uh, man, we must have set a record for the use of the word galvanized tonight. That's good. Good, good times. You're doing good. Doing the Lord's work out here. Uh, all right. So I know you got to get out of here pretty quick. Um, Slapfish. Quickly, how did that come about? Because the, the stuff that you post food-wise, I mean, it's the main reason I, you know, found you, obviously, and then went down to the Slapfish. What is it in San, San Clay? Is it in San Jose? I think. Got one down We've got one in San Jose. Yeah. yeah, that's the one I went to last year and got that giant lobster. Oh, that's good stuff. Uh, so, so how did that come about? How did you, why seafood? Yeah, so I, I've just always been obsessed with kind of the ocean and seafood and yeah. marine stewardship. And, and I started a program. So after I, I've been in restaurants my whole life, but I had an opportunity in 2009 to start a nonprofit at the Aquarium of the Pacific here in Long Beach focused yeah. on kind of sustainable, well-managed seafood, but ultimately getting chefs to serve and use the right types of seafood. Also simultaneously kind of educating consumers about 
eating more seafood, but the right types of seafood, because frankly, we do need to be eating more seafood, but people are confused about it. So my idea behind Slapfish was well, if I could create a genre of food that's kind of really, really approachable, because with seafood on the one end of the spectrum, you either got white tablecloth, fancy fine dining. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, you got greasy fried seafood. There's nothing in that kind of sexy middle, right? Yeah. Like we've seen better burgers, better burritos, all this kind of chef driven food in this fast casual space. So I said, if I could create a brand of seafood that's more approachable, it gets people to eat more seafood, highlight the fishermen, celebrate the fishermen, celebrate the sustainable seafood angle of this, but in an environment, once again, the quality of fine dining at the cost and convenience of fast, faster food. Yeah. Um, and thus Slapfish was born. So I started as a food truck in 2011, uh, opened my first brick and mortar in 2012. Uh, now we're up to around 30 locations. That's awesome. I would appreciate if you could put one in Napa. That'd be great, man. Yeah. It's a tough market up there. No, I know. <laughs> would, but. Yeah. Uh, and so the last, so I, I was curious about this because maybe this is something you can answer real quick before you take off. We're, we're, we're already seeing like the prices of goods, like, you know, wheat, beef's been going up for the last two years as well. But is there, is there any impact on seafood have you seen, or especially creating as many restaurants as you have now? <laughs> oh man, seafood actually, seafood's the worst. So most is people it? have removed seafood from their menus. It's already, it's already incredibly wow. volatile industry because it's based on wild capture fisheries are based yeah. on so many things from weather to processing to shipping, et cetera. But now with, especially with the issue in, in Ukraine, people don't realize how much Russian seafood there is on the market. And yeah. these sanctions are affecting the overall seafood supply. So even if I wasn't buying Russian seafood, the mere reduction of 10% of a particular commodity is going to affect the price of all of it. Oh, Jesus. Is um, it that, is, and, is it that uh, much coming that, from them? A lot. Well, you, Russia used to own Alaska, tons of the seafood coming out of the Bering Sea around the oh, waters around Alaska. Um, you know, that that's a good seafood, the major fishing fishing ground. In addition, Russia processes a lot of seafood. They work hand in hand with China. Um, so overall, yeah, it's been affecting the seafood industry as a whole, but gas prices, right? Yeah. Uh, fishermen aren't going to go out. They're not going to take their boats out right, anymore exactly. if, given the price of gas. So it's not even it's not even that they're paying more and therefore those prices, they're just not even going to go fish. That's insane. There's going to be a return to sailboats. Nothing but sailboats and Tesla boats coming. Elon Musk. Yeah, bingo, bingo. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I really would love to talk to you again and do another part if you can or and get a little longer into it. Um, but yeah, I do appreciate you hanging out for the half hour that you did, bro. I know you got familial responsibilities to take care of, so I appreciate your time, buddy. Awesome, thank you. Yeah, we'll do part two soon. Thank you so much. It's an honor. All right, Chef Andrew Brule, there will be bourbon. <laughs>